My name is Jeff Harbach. I'm the CEO of Coffin Fellows and an MBA graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, we'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. And today, I'd like to welcome David Chekets to the podcast. Welcome, David. Thank you, Kurt. Great to be with you on this podcast. It should be fun. Yeah, for sure. And I think people have uh, uh, are familiar with some of your um, professional accomplishments and whatnot. But most recently, a year ago, you came home uh, serving a mission president in the United Kingdom. Is that right? I did. I was in the England-London mission with my wife, Deb. It was a three-year experience, uh, never to be forgotten. Uh, COVID, of course, inter- just <laughs> slightly interrupted us. Uh 20 months in, and for the rest of our mission, we were uh, in lockdown in COVID. So it was, it was truly amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm just curious, and we'll get into maybe some of the specifics of your experience, but walking into a a role like a mission president, obviously you've been a stake president and bishop and whatnot that maybe led up to that. But uh, did you draw upon a lot of your professional experience as far as like managing an organization and whatnot to really find success there? Or or how did you navigate that? Well, it's different when you are following, (laughs) trying to follow the spirit completely and make sure that you are, you are, doing what the Lord would have you do as a mission president. These lives that are put under your responsibility are so precious. And we had an amazing group of missionaries, uh, initially 285 missionaries in our mission from 54 different countries. And so languages and cultures and just an incredible opportunity for us and a, a great, great experience. As I say, never to be forgotten. Yeah, for sure. And then what was the, the COVID experience like in, in your mission? Because I know f- for some missions, many foreign missions, they sent all those foreign missionaries home and it was quite disruptive. What was it like for your mission? Well, it was one of the most faith-promoting experiences of all of this is that the the European missions under the direction of our area president, uh, Elder Gary B. Saban of the 70, we stayed open. We, we were the missions that didn't send people home. We, we had yeah. to send our senior couples home uh, just, in, you know, just in case of the health risk. We had to send, we, we sent probably 15 or 16 missionaries home that, 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 you know, either due to diabetes or asthma or other problems uh, needed to, to be protected. But everybody else stayed, and we suddenly switched the schedule completely in lockdown because literally they couldn't leave their flats. I mean, oh, wow. they were they were in lockdown, and everyone was afraid. Everyone was wondering what 
what would this mean and how would this change our lives, let alone our missionary work? And how do we avoid um, getting sick? Uh, because, the, you, you know, in, in the early stages of COVID, we were all being warned that if you got it, you were going to die. <laughs> yeah, we didn't really we, know what it was or we how. Didn't, we yeah. didn't know. And so to be for these young men, young women to be so far away from home, for them to lose their key sponsors who were the senior missionaries. Um, there was a lot of fear. And I just remember continually saying, fear not, you know, do not mm -hmm. fear. Jesus said it over and over and over again to his apostles of various times, either of storms or some other but he said, fear not. He used that all the time. And that's that's what we said. The Lord will take care of us. And he did. He yeah. did. Wow, that's awesome. Well, let's uh, pivot back to maybe the, the the other end of your life, the beginning of your life, being raised and, and whatnot. What, uh, were you raised in a pretty traditional Latter-day Saint home? Well, I, 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 I think so. I mean, my <laughs> mother was a very devout member of the church. She never drove a car. It's hard to believe that, but wow. my mother was born in a little farming town in northern Utah, Wellsville, Utah, just the, just uh, the south side of Logan, and that's where she was born and raised. She never learned to drive a car. She was a very talented musician. She always played the organ at uh, church. She walked to church to play the organ for hundreds of funerals where we lived and uh, walked to do grocery shopping. And, and I said at her funeral that the reason she walked was she loved the earth. Mm -hmm. She just loved to grow tomatoes. She loved to grow fruit on trees. She was amazing. My father, on the other hand, was a a Marine, a World War II veteran, a tough, um, but very funny, wonderful, engaged father, not so much in the church. He did not come to church with us, but he was a member and he uh, was raised a member. And actually it's through my father's family that I am a, a direct relative, uh, my great, 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 great-grandfather was Hiram Smith. Oh, wow. So, so that's through my father's family, and I was always really proud of that, that direct, uh, being a direct relative. But my father was uh, just a, a kind-hearted, wonderful, um, very patriotic, and he loved the Lord. I know he loved the Lord, although... Mm -hmm. He couldn't quite grasp his membership in the church. So we would go off. We would trudge off every Sunday morning. We'd come home finding him reading the newspaper still, the Sunday edition of the newspaper. <laughs> but he prayed with us, and he supported us all as we went on our missions. Um, and, I, you know, I wish that those issues that had held him back uh, would were changed, but he was who he was, a great dad. Yeah. And did you say, what did he do for work growing up? 
my dad was the ultimate salesman. He was um, he was always selling something. I worked with him for many years when he was selling mobile homes, trailers for people to live in, for to actually have as their home. And these mobile homes were fifteen thousand dollars, sixteen thousand dollars. And I was the guy that would back up the the big trailer, the seventy foot long trailer into your little spot at the mobile home park and hook up the water and sewer and and make sure the air conditioning worked and you were in a home. And my dad was really proud of that because that was those were mostly people who who had trouble affording their own home, but but he he took great pride in putting a roof over their heads. Yeah. Wow. So what do you remember as your earliest ambitions, like professional ambitions? What, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, I would have told you, Kurt, if you met me when I was <clears throat> 10 years old, uh, I would have told you I was going to be a pilot. Oh, wow. Uh, that I was going to be a professional pilot. You can imagine how much I enjoyed watching Top Gun because there was in the 60s, actually, a movie called The Hunters. It was about this crew of fighter pilots uh, fighting the during the Korean War. And I just was so in love with the idea that I could fly an airplane. And uh, so that was my earliest ambition. But it, it changed quickly because sports became such a major force in my life. And really what I thought I wanted to do was uh, start at guard for the Boston Celtics. That's, oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I loved the NBA, loved basketball. I played basketball with my brothers out in back of our house and on the, the, the grade school playgrounds my whole life. It was, yeah. that was the game. Yeah. And uh, you went to, to school in Bountiful then, or? I did. I went to, uh, we lived there my whole childhood. I went to Bountiful High School. And um, my older brother was on a, a team at Bountiful that won the state championship. I was there at BYU, the Einer Field, uh, Fieldhouse, Einer Nielsen Fieldhouse, when Bountiful High beat Logan High School for the state championship. And, um, and for a whole host of reasons, I never got the opportunity to play in high school. I got, I got cut my sophomore year, my junior year. Finally, I didn't even try out my senior year because I could tell that there was uh, not a lot of interest in having me on the team. So I went to BYU. I um, went and met with the coaches the first day I was there. I had grown three inches between my senior year and my freshman year in college. I asked for a chance to try out. Um, and the coaches there knew about my brother and knew how good he was and wondered why I didn't play. But they gave me a chance, and I made I made the team there at oh, BYU wow. my freshman year. And that was, uh, that was just a great opportunity for me. To, to play my favorite game in the brand new Marriott Center. It was only a couple of years old back yeah. then. So and it was a ginormous stadium at that time, right? It was just <laughs> probably the largest maybe in college yeah. basketball or one of the largest in Yeah. 
I just loved putting that uniform on and, and playing for that school. And yeah. I had I had promised the Lord that if if he would magnify my talents and help me make the team that after one year I would go on a mission. And I did. Yeah. Uh, to the California Arcadia mission, which, nice, you know, changed my whole life. Yeah. Well, I'm a fellow California missionary. So I went to Sacramento. So it's a, it's a special, special place. So, it is. It is. Um, so anything else that would be worth mentioning just about your faith development during those developmental years? Well, the most important person in my faith development was actually a girl that I met when I was a sophomore in my seminary class. <laughs> and she was really special. She just had great faith, was really devoted to the church. And I knew if I was going to get anywhere with her <laughs> that I was going to have to be faithful myself. So... Um, she wrote in my yearbook after our, our sophomore year, she said, you know, I respect you enormously because you're a young man who honors his priesthood. Oh. Now, now Kurt, who <laughs> do you know that writes that in somebody's yearbook? I mean, everybody else writes, you're really a cool kid. Have a great <laughs> summer. You know, she writes, you honor your priesthood. I'm happy to say that that she is my wife, and nice. uh, we met as sophomores in seminary. She wrote to me for part of my mission until somebody else came into the picture. Oh, I'm happy to say that I got home in time, and we were married seven months after my mission and have been together ever since now over 45 years. Oh, that's great. Wow. Awesome. So, uh, and going on a mission, I mean, it sounded like that wasn't a huge question for you, something you were always planning on doing? or I think so. My cousins had gone. I had a strong feeling that, like my brother before me, who was an incredible missionary in Uruguay, Paraguay, that I was going to go. And I, when the time came, I did. Yeah. So, uh, that first year at BYU, what were your, I, I, obviously being a pilot was not in your, it, were you just focused on figuring out how to get to the NBA or, or was there, were there other professional ambitions at that point? No, I, look, I realized that I was good enough to make the team, but I also knew I was not good enough to play in the NBA. So you're a realist to some extent. I, I was a realist and coming home from my mission, you know, this Kurt, you get, you get all serious about life and <laughs> and academics and how am I going to provide for a family and and I did that. I came home and raced through school, went right into business school from my undergraduate, and uh, and loved my two years of business school, and then got my dream job. I went to Bain and Company in Boston. Um, Someone you probably know, Mitt Romney, made me the offer to uh, for me to come. He was a partner there, and he made me the offer, and I accepted the offer on the spot, and and we moved our family to Boston. I had never been east of Denver at that point, wow. and uh, we moved to Boston uh, after my first interview there, and. Um, and have almost been on the 
on the East Coast ever since, with the exception of coming back to be president and general manager of the Jazz in the mid '80s, and then um, then we went came right back to New York and Connecticut in 1990. Nice. So uh, you come home from your mission, and then uh, the were, were there still some basketball ambitions? Did you still want to play? But I guess the coaching had changed, and that shifted your your plan. Frank Arnold had been hired as the BYU's new coach, and he had a whole list of recruits and was not interested in anything I could provide for him. So I transferred to the University of Utah, where I um, I just got a great job in Salt Lake City, the mm-hmm. kind of job that I didn't think was available in Provo. It was just a running clothing store, so it wasn't anything more special than that, but they they offered to pay my tuition and books if I would work for them during uh, the rest of my undergrad. So we moved to Salt Lake City. Um, we moved to student housing after our, our wedding. And uh, I went to work on an undergraduate degree in business and finance. And that led, led me right into applying for business school at BYU. And that's where I went. Nice. As far as that transition from getting your undergrad to going to business school, was did you always plan to, to go to BYU in their MBA program, or what was that process like as you were graduating? I My plan actually was to apply to, to business schools in other parts of the country, but I was not quite finished with my undergraduate degree, so I was actually planning on applying the following year but um, I applied it to BYU, and they actually, fortunately, were impressed enough with my academic performance that they accepted me early hmm. without my undergraduate, and I went, to, went right to business school. So I graduated from business school when I was 25. So I, Deb and I had two children by then, and we were kind of racing through life, to say the least. I yeah. was... I think I was in a hurry and it took me a while to slow down. Yeah. Any advice that comes to mind or maybe some that you've given to your own children as they've gone to business school and, and that opportunity or the, you know, the rigor of, of that, that type of path, any, any advice you'd give to maybe an ingoing MBA student? I just don't think you could do anything with your time that would be more valuable than a graduate degree. I, I loved it. I learned so much. I look back on it now, and I realize that one of the miracles that happened back then is uh, in my first year, I had this professor that I just loved. He was teaching organizational behavior, and I just really, really, um, I really, it, it, it was just a perfect friendship. The professor's name was Steve Covey, mm-hmm. and, and I became his teaching assistant um, and for my second year, which I just learned an incredible amount. He had not published the book, The Seven Basic Habits of Highly Effective People yet, but he was certainly teaching it. And those truths and his teaching, um, I think, made a huge difference in my life. And that's what, that's what graduate schools are. They are 
they are as close to real life performance because you 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 work with the case method, you work on real real life problems, um, you have study groups and really bright people to learn from, great professors. I, I loved business school and it, and and once I was finished with business school and went to Bain and Company, that was like a postgraduate degree because. <laughs> Now I was in the middle of working for big companies in New York, in Boston, and and I I just learned again so much. And it's not people think that you go to to graduate school or go get a degree so that your resume looks good. That's like the last thing that you do this for. You do this to shape your mind and to gain confidence that you know how to solve problems, real life problems, real life situations, whether that's in business or medicine, or you know how to solve problems. And, and educating your mind that way is just so rewarding. When I, when I graduated from business school, and then after I had three years under my belt <clears throat> at Bain & Company, I I just felt like I could run any business, even though I had never run a lemonade stand. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I had I had faced these difficult problems in the boardrooms of really big companies, competitive strategies, and 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 trying to save a company like Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, which was bankrupt, and we were here. I was twenty five years old, trying to advise the CEO about, you know, which plants to close and how many people to fire. And, and we were really tackling very difficult problems. And, and then I got a chance to do a case on the NBA and to help a group of investors buy the Boston Celtics. And that's really where I became prepared to, to take a role in professional sports. Yeah. And, and that's the twist in the story. You did make it to the NBA. It just wasn't as the point guard of the Celtics, right? So right. what's the story behind uh, actually making that transition and being focused on the NBA and building a career there? Well, I, um, I, was, I was asked to take this case team on to help investors that wanted to buy the Boston Celtics. And we were looking to interview everybody we could about the economics of professional sports, and 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 we we needed to answer one question that these investors were really really concerned about. The question is, what is the difference between a franchise that continually wins year after year, the Golden State Warriors? You know, yeah. what's the difference between a franchise like that and a franchise that just never wins never quite gets there think of the charlotte hornets or the orlando magic now they've been they've kind of been down for years and years now and you you say why with all of the draft picks and everything that they should have accumulated why aren't they better and i i set out to answer that question and i i learned a lot about it but in the process i I met David Stern, who was 
at that time the deputy commissioner of the NBA. He would later become commissioner, and he became my mentor. He became the driving force of my professional life. And I was just so grateful for his opening doors for me. The first door that he opened was to call the owner of the Utah Jazz and say, look, I've got this young guy who is from Utah, a Latter-day Saint, and the Jazz were failing miserably. They had moved to Utah in 1979. They were getting 6,000 people a game. Uh, They were losing uh, tons of money. And David Stern, it was David Stern who called Sam Battistone, the owner of the Jazz, and said, you got to hire this guy. You need to hire him as quickly as you can. I didn't know any of this was taking place. Oh, wow. But Sam Battistone uh, flew to New York, invited me to bring my wife to New York, We had dinner in a little Italian restaurant on the east side of Manhattan. And at the end of the the dinner, he took a napkin and scribbled an offer for me to become president and general manager of the jazz. Wow. And And at that point, did you think that you were going to spend a few more, another decade at at Bain & Company? Or were you looking for this type of opportunity? Well, uh, David Stern actually suggested to Bill Bain, the chairman of the company, that I take a leave of absence from Bain and go take two years and really turn the business around and then go back to Bain and Company, Um, which was the plan initially. I I moved to Utah for two years. It was great to be back home, great to be with family, but I fell in love with the business. And... In, I got there in late 1983. We had just drafted Thurl Bailey in 1984. We drafted John Stockton in 1985. We drafted Carl Malone. And I really thought we could win a title with those players if I stayed long enough. So I never went back to Bain. Um, I did leave the Jazz in 1990 to be uh, president of, or I'm sorry, general manager of NBA International. And I was only there really six, eight months when uh, the New York Knicks came and asked me to come and and be president there. And that was my childhood team. So so that was the dream come true to to run the Knicks. And then Madison Square Garden, the, the parent company for the next 11 years. Yeah. And that's really the, where the, the majority of your professional life was, right? Oh, yes. And and for good reason, it was a, it was an incredible opportunity to run not only the Knicks, but the New York Rangers hockey club launched the New York Liberty women's Mm -hmm. and the WNBA team to buy radio city music hall to run uh, MSG Network, which included the Yankees, the Mets, the Nets, the Islanders, the Devils, the Rangers. I mean, we had we had every New York team on that television network. And so the 90s were quite a decade for both the Knicks and the Rangers. The Rangers won the Stanley Cup. The Knicks were in the NBA Finals twice. Couldn't quite win it, but uh, were there twice. And, of course, the Jazz were there twice. So 
I I think um, I think I could have won four championship rings <laughs> in the NBA if not for one Michael Jordan. Oh, right. Yeah. And you're probably not the only person that, that has a tale like that, right? <laughs> I'm afraid not. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Wow. So um, let, let's jump into some of these principles here. You, you were kind enough to send me a list of some various principles and or, or that are in the form of uh, scripture references that have maybe impacted you in your your professional life and and your faith. And the first one being the famous proverbs verse where there is no vision the people perish how did how did vision play a role in your in your life well i think if you don't uh if if you're not an individual that can create a vision for your life and what you want to accomplish it makes everything much tougher Mm. i'm not sure that you perish but (laughs) but um a vision is a powerful dream or an idea that gets you out of bed in the morning. And for me, that idea goes back again to childhood where in 1970, the there was a team in Utah called the Utah Stars. Hmm. And the Utah Stars played in the ABA they played with a red, white, and blue basketball. <laughs> it's funny to think of those days. Yeah. But the Utah Stars came to Salt Lake City, played in the Salt Palace, and I was watching television on the night that they won the ABA title. Wow. And for me, that was the vision because the fans all stormed the court in the Salt Palace. They were boosting the players up on their shoulders. Salt Lake had won an ABA championship their first year in the league. Now, of course, the league would die later on, and the ABA, much of it would fold. The NBA took four teams into the NBA from the ABA. They took the Indiana Pacers. They took the San Antonio Spurs. They took the Denver Nuggets. And I'm missing one team. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember who it was, but there's, they took four teams in. Oh, the Nets okay. in uh, New York. So they took these four teams in, and the rest of the ABA folded, so the Utah Stars were no more. But I never lost sight of that vision. And when the Jazz came to town, um, I actually told David Stern that they were the worst franchise in all of basketball. Because even though they'd moved to Utah, the truth was they they drafted Dominique Wilkins and traded him for $1 million. Oh, wow. To the Atlanta Hawks. They, they traded two first-round picks to the Los Angeles Lakers for um, – a guy called uh, Gail Goodrich, who was 34 and nearly done. <laughs> and one of those first-round picks turned out to be a player you might have heard of. His name's Magic Johnson. <laughs> oh, man. What could have been? <laughs> so the Jazz had just done all, made all of these mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And um, I complained to David Stern bitterly about him. I just said they couldn't have done anything worse. And then three weeks later, I was named president and general manager and uh, returned home. 
with the vision of creating a championship team. That's what I wanted to do, create a championship team. I wanted people to, to enjoy, you know, and, and I, I wanted a team that could unify Salt Lake City because that was such a big deal to me that, that they had won the title, even though it was the ABA, it wasn't the NBA. Yeah. So I, so it's just a, it's a way of saying that every day in your professional life, even in your personal life, I believe this scriptural passage where there is no vision, the people perish. They have to have something to work towards, to work for. And so I believe in setting goals and, and stretching to meet those goals. In, in London, as a mission president, um, it was a different set of, it was a different vision, you know, baptizing a, a whole stake there while we were there. That was the vision. That was the goal. Mm. And unifying and strengthening the saints in England. I mean, and, and doing it with missionaries from 54 countries. It, it was easy to develop a vision of what could be achieved. And I think that in every life, you need to develop your own set of daydreams, visions, goals that you want, you want to be a part of something significant. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a, a part of a team that brought a championship to Utah. I didn't do that in the NBA. We got, twi- we got close. But I did it in soccer, you know, the yeah. Real Salt Lake yeah. won the championship in 2009 and hoisted the trophy. So when you're in sports, if you're in sports for any other reason than to win, Kurt, it's pretty drab. You got to yeah. win. You got to yeah. win. Yeah, that's for sure. And so anything else you'd add as far as like the day-to-day application of, of that? Was, I mean, as you were maybe even training your missionaries on this concept, was it something written? Did you want them to get a visual of the goal? Was it just uh, reiterating it again and again in every setting? I mean, how, did you, how do you really cement a vision in an organization that you're leading? Well, I, I'm going to give you a very close-to-home uh, example and then we'll talk about how it applies to an organization. This is, yesterday I was on the phone with, I was on a Zoom call with two of our missionaries, male and female, who are in love. Oh, wow. Um, they want to marry. They live in different countries, very different countries, a long way from each other. But this is what they want. They've, they're, they're absolutely committed to it. They've been writing to each other they know that this was meant to be. And what I said to them was, I want you to formalize this relationship. In other words, get engaged, get a ring, put it on her finger somehow, fly there if you have to, uh-huh. put it on her finger, and then I want you to set a date. I want you to set a date that is important to you, that has some significance to you. Maybe it could be your parents' anniversary or your birthday or, or six months from today. What, whatever it is, a date that has some significance to you. And set that date and etch it in stone. Even though I know you don't have a work visa, you, you're not sure where you're going to live, 
You don't know how this will all unfold. Where there is no vision, the people will perish. Now the vision is you're going to be married. You're going to be married in the Orlando Temple. It's going to be on June 2nd. You can see the beautiful bride in white and you in, dressed in your, your best suit, your happy families gathered at the temple. That becomes your desire and your vision. And what will happen, and I really believe this, it sounds like I'm a lunatic, but what will happen is that the universe begins to move in the direction of your dreams. I believe this with all of my heart and soul, yeah. that the universe begins to revolve around the righteous desires of your heart. And this is a righteous desire. Yeah. And the universe revolves around it, and you pray in faith, and you picture the conclusion of this every day. You see yourself in the temple every day. You take time. Joseph Smith said, when a man works by faith, he works by mental exertion, not by physical force. And he also said that the moving cause of all action, both in temporal and in spiritual concerns, is faith. So you have faith in that vision, in that dream, and the universe, it literally happens, Kurt. I, I'm getting kind of excited talking yeah, about yeah. it. It I literally happens that, that things start to move in that direction. And it wasn't an act. I don't think it was an accident that we drafted Thurl Bailey, John Stockton, Carl Malone. You know, those, two, those last two draft picks are two of the top 50 players that ever played in the NBA. Yeah, they got a statue out front now, right? <laughs> and we drafted Carl, number 13, and John, number 16 in the draft. There were, yeah. there were 15 players picked before John Stockton in that draft. And, but it's part of this. It's part of yeah. having a vision that we actually wanted the Jazz to be a championship team. And we moved in that direction. Unfortunately for me, I wasn't part of it by the time they got there, but, but you know, they got there. Yeah. And, and they had a chance to win, as you know. Yeah. And, and that's a long way from where the Jazz were when I first went out and they were bankrupt and they were being outdrawn by the Golden Eagles Hockey Club. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's powerful. Well, let's go to Mosiah now. Uh, the natural man is an enemy to God. Uh, how's that influenced so I, you? I think this is one of the most oft-quoted. I've even heard that it's the most oft-quoted scripture from the Book of Mormon by people in general conference. Oh, okay. Interesting. I wish I had that factually confirmed. I'm not sure that it is, but I have been told that it it's the most quoted. So, this is really about life. This is about your life and my life. And that is the natural man is an enemy to God. The flesh, the spirit and the body is the soul of man. But the flesh wants things and wants more of them than, than is good for the soul. They, the, the flesh wants to sleep longer. The flesh wants to eat things that are not good for you. The flesh wants other things that are that are really not good at all for you. So 
this scripture in Mosiah 3.19 has been my, my mantra ever since Stephen Covey taught it to me in such a powerful way. The natural man is an enemy. That's really strong language yeah. to God and has been since the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. That is the key to life. Fasting enough that you weaken your physical body so that your spiritual body rises and can communicate with the Lord's Spirit and that your life choices are driven by that spirit, that that spirit. You follow Jesus Christ. You follow the Father in every way. And it's done by weakening the physical control over your body and letting the spirit communicate with the Lord's spirit and following in that in that pathway. And I just think that is life. That is the battle of life. And getting up at 629 in the morning was part of putting off the natural man. And and that first victory of the day meant that there would be many other victories during the day because you had won that first battle. And that's, that's totally a Stephen Covey uh, <laughs> premise. But I, yeah. I completely adhere to it. Yeah. And I love just framing that, uh, you know, having that framework in life that, you know, because things get hard, especially for young professionals who are early in their career or in, in school and in demanding schedule and recognizing that there's this constant battle between the natural man and ourselves. And it's, yeah. you know, you're going to have to push through it. Right? You you have to push through it because it, it, uh, it allows you to not only control yourself, but to control your circumstances, too, and yeah. to and to be able to give everything that you need to have a family, to provide for that family, to take your place in the world and make, make a difference. Yeah, really helpful. All right, next scripture is from Dr. Cummins 121. Many are called, but few are chosen. Yeah. <laughs> Joseph Smith, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Joseph Smith, months in Liberty Jail, he couldn't even stand up in that cold, dirty dungeon and yet it was there that he wrote doctrine and covenants 121 which is one of the classic chapters in all of scripture there's more wisdom in that chapter than than i've read in any other single chapter of scripture and that's saying a lot mm -hmm. but the prophet was given to know that that, you know, the, the connection between the priesthood and heaven, when, when the scripture was given him, many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? And then he gives this incredible warning. Because their hearts are set so much on the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men that they do not learn this one lesson that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected, inseparably connected with the powers of heaven, and that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. It's, I, had, I, had, I begged our missionaries to just 
memorize those eight verses, you know, because it is so powerful that 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 the rewards come for righteousness. That they are heavenly rewards. They are great blessings. But you cannot there's no pretending. There's no there's no faking this. You either get this or you don't. And that is heaven actually is controlled by your faith and by the power of the priesthood in your family with your spouse and with your children and with your life. I mean, you cannot lay hands on someone requesting a blessing and not think through whether or not you're prepared and worthy to offer this blessing. And you have to withdraw if you're not because this is all handled and controlled yeah. by this principle. So so I, I just, I think especially for Latter-day Saints, I mean, the desire to be called is wonderful, but the desire to be chosen and to understand that one connection between the powers of heaven and the powers of the priesthood, which gets exercised by men and women, is really powerful. Yeah. Any stories or situations come to mind as far as how this principle in your in your professional life, uh, how this principle was applied there? Yes. In my professional life, I was serving as a state president. I was the CEO of a New York-based company called Legends, and Legends ran all of the food and beverage in a, a whole host of stadiums. We were involved in a very important project at the World Trade Center. I was so busy all the time. And one morning, December the 12th of, um, December the 12th, I, yes, December the 12th of 2012, um, a bulletin came on the news in my office that there had been a mass shooting at Newtown Elementary School in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. Hmm. And I knew immediately that was in my stake. Oh, wow. And, um, and I, my son happened to be working uh, in that same office, and he came in and said, did you see this, Dad? And I said, yeah, I did see it. And he said, you got to get up there. And I said, oh, no, I, I don't have to get up there. I mean... First of all, we don't know anything about about anyone who was hurt or killed. But secondly, you know, the chances, I don't even know if we have any kids in that grade school. And my son looked at me and he said, you better find out. Hmm. And then, you know, I after he left my office, I actually knelt by my desk and asked the Lord whether this was something I needed to be concerned about. And the, and the power of the answer was unmistakable. I, absolutely, I needed to be a part of this. So I called the bishop, and the bishop was out of town. And I knew that that was one hint as to why I needed to be involved. Then I started calling other members. I found out that we had five members of the church, five little kids in that elementary school. So then we started to round them all up. And one by one, we found them. 
until we realized that we were missing a six-year-old girl. Hmm. And I tried to reach her family, but they were unavailable. And uh, then I got in a car. I called a policeman who was in our stake, full-time police officer, and asked him to meet me. I called my counselors, and we went running up to Newtown, Connecticut, where we would be really for the next few weeks as we found out that we lost a little girl, um, Emily Parker, uh, the oldest of three daughters of uh, Robbie and Alyssa Parker, who had just moved to our stake six months before. Hmm. Wow. And I, you know, I just am grateful I was there. The bishop wasn't there. I went right to their house. I had deeply spiritual experiences over the next few weeks that, that would take me way too much time to, to tell you about. I just know that, um, you know, I had many things I had to do at work that day. I had really important meetings that I was focused on. But remember, the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. I was drawn there for a reason. I canceled everything I was supposed to do, including a trip that I was supposed to make that day out of town. I canceled everything. And I will never forget that I was yeah. in the place the Lord wanted me that day. Wow. Wow. Oh, all right. Next one is uh, for the the power is in them. DNC fifty eight. Yes. Any professional or spiritual experiences come to mind of that application? Well, I, this is one of my very favorite scriptures. Uh, maybe I've said that a few times. <laughs> but, but this uh, scripture in Doctrine and Covenants really is talking about agency and the fact that free agency was a, is a gift of God. That, as you know, and as we know as members of the church, it was a great battle that was waged before this earth was, and the battle was over free agency. And I am so grateful to know that Jesus' plan to give everyone free agency and to allow them to choose good and evil was adopted. And um, so... So this applies to your professional career as well as your service in the church and kingdom. And that is that, that you know, men should be anxiously engaged. Men and women should be anxiously engaged in a good cause and bring to pass much righteousness. That should be the aim of your life, actually, to bring to pass much righteousness and then this statement, for the power is in them, wherein they are agents unto themselves. And, and this, this is, my missionaries must have just gotten so tired of hearing uh, this. Where I, what I was trying to teach them is wherever they were at that hour, at that moment, at that time, the power had been given them to do great things and to bring to pass much righteousness and to choose the better part. I mean, to, to sacrifice, to work, to bring to pass much righteousness because each of us in that, in that war of free agency, another thing was given to us, and that is the power to choose, 
the power to act, the power to be. It's, it's so incredible to me. And, and so I, I, I like to remind people, you have the power to do yeah. this. You've been given the power to do this. Don't complain about the results of free agency. It doesn't mean that you're going to win every world championship, but you'll have a chance. You'll have a chance because the power is in you to do wonderful things and to live the life of your dreams and your visions. Doesn't mean there won't be really difficult moments. I've had really difficult moments, really yeah trying moments and uh <clears throat> but i recognize that that the lord endowed us with power to choose the better part to bring to pass much righteousness and to act for ourselves and not to be acted upon yeah yeah i love that i was that my mind went to that scripture in second nephi too that you know we are agents of action not to yes. be acted upon and and but it's so easy to sort of get trapped there right with so yes. much coming at us so many responsibilities and and so what a great reminder that the the power is in us right yes. to do it all right dr covenants 123 let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power this is a, a favorite of mine as well yes great scripture again right after joseph has emerged from liberty jail with dr and covenants 121 122. Now he gives us this little verse at the end of uh, Doctrine and Covenants 17. And I, I think the message here, Kurt, is that we've got to be of good cheer. You know, the scripture says, let us cheerfully do all things in our power. My father, I, I've already said, he wasn't really an active member of the church. He had a word of wisdom problem. And so you kind of tend to get branded in the church with that problem. I wish it wasn't that way because uh, I loved him so dearly. And actually it was smoking that, that killed him later yeah. on at a young age. He died of lung cancer and smoking was uh, a horrible part of his life. He started smoking because he had to go work on the railroad when he was 14 years old to support his family. His family was 10 children. His father had a stroke at a young age. And um, my father went to Mexico to work on the railroad. That's where he start, started smoking. Wow. He started again when he was a Marine in, in the Pacific. And, and it, it ended up killing him. But but if I go to my father's headstone in Bountiful, Utah today, and if I stand there, and I do this all the time because I love that spot, I love to go think of him, on his headstone is a picture of the Salt Lake Temple and a reminder that he and my mother were married in the Salt Lake Temple because he had put his life in order then and taken her to the temple, which is what she wanted. Later on, he started smoking again, and he lost his activity in the church, but he was always true to his, his temple covenants mm. for the most part, with the yeah. exception of the word of wisdom. But my dad's favorite saying is also on his headstone. So there's the temple, there's the fact that he was a World War II veteran, and then there is this saying by him that he said to us all the time, be of good cheer. 
he, I don't know why he loved it so much other than it's so powerful. And Jesus said it over and over and over again, including it was the last thing that he said in John chapter 16, verse 33, before he went into the garden to begin the sacred atonement. The last thing he said to his disciples was, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So my dad, it's right on his headstone. He said it all the time, be of good cheer. And he had lots of reasons. He, had, he didn't have any professional success to speak of. He struggled to support our family. I, I had to buy his house at the end of his life to keep he and my mom in his house. I was glad I could do that. But it was one more time where he invested in something that failed and mm. and he was not in good health then and it was a sad way to go. But he always said, even till the last his last dying moment, be of good cheer. And there are lots of miserable people around and you've worked <laughs> with them and you know yeah. them and you you think about going into work and you just say, Oh gosh. I, I really don't want to face that person. Jesus said it for a reason. Regardless of what is happening in your life, we can be happy. And just as Joseph Smith said, after miserable moments in Liberty Jail, he said, let us cheerfully do everything we can, do everything that lies in our power. Let us cheerfully do this. Let's go. Yeah. And, and uh, that's how my dad was. And so... I think it's great advice. I think it's great advice for anyone. If you're miserable all the time, you might have some depression that needs to be treated professionally. But I, I, I love this phrase that I heard, and I don't remember who said it. I almost think it was Will Rogers who said, at the end of my life, I've made up my mind that everyone has a chance to be just about as happy as they decide to be. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I think happiness is a choice for most people. There are some other problems that that could be a part of it, but I think it's a choice for most people. So let us cheerfully do all that we can in our power and be of good cheer. Love it. Well, Proverbs started your list, and now it's ending your list with Proverbs three five through six. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. What would yeah, you say around that? This is the scripture that um, that that little girl in seminary, once we did start dating when we were seniors in high school, this became our couple scripture. And uh, it's it is Proverbs three, five and six. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding in all thy ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct thy path. So, so I mean, it's just so powerful. Yeah. Put your trust in the Lord. Don't lean to your own understanding. Let the Lord prevail in your life. Exactly what President Nelson taught us. Let God prevail in your life. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. Lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he will take care of everything else. It does not mean it will be easy, but it means it will be 
positive and powerful. And in my own life, it was a great uh, hardship for me to leave the jazz after seven years. <clears throat> but um, I had found Larry Miller uh, to come in and buy half the team. We got First Security Bank to loan him $8 million, and he became the half owner of the team. And then later, he bought the whole team. And I was very, very young. I was 27 when I became president of the team. Wow. And at this point in uh, 1989, I'm 30, uh, almost, th I was 39. And um, I'd had these great years with the team, but, um, but we didn't get along. Yeah. I would just say it, we didn't get along. And he wanted to do things differently than I had been doing them for a long time. And I had to go, I had to leave. And we loved living in Salt Lake. By then we had five children. I was a bishop in the avenues in Salt Lake in the Federal Heights ward. We loved our ward. We loved everything about our lives. And it was, um, it was a real blow to us that we had to leave. When we were sitting at the press conference to announce that I was leaving, uh, one of the writers and reporters said to my wife, Deb, anything you want to say about this? Because you guys have been with the jazz a long time, and it's hard to imagine the jazz without you. So, Deb, do you have anything you want to say? And she said, well, you know what? It's like we, we found this baby that no one else wanted in the early 80s and we took good care of the baby and we we made sure it got the food and rest and everything else that it needed and it became a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because by then we were selling out every night. We played the Lakers to a seven game series that was one of the all time series in 1988. We lost game seven, but it was an amazing, I mean, it showed that with Malone and Stockton, we were going to be a force. And then Deb said, and then we woke, it's like we woke up one morning and realized the, ba the child's not ours. It's not <laughs> ours. Yeah. yeah. And that was exactly right. It wasn't ours. I wasn't the owner. I was just the president and the general manager. And so... So for a year and a half, I was looking for a job and I was doing consulting work. And I was trying to support my family because I didn't leave the jazz with any severance at all. I was in the cold. And if you don't think that was a very difficult time and a time where I was, I, I didn't want to get angry, but mm. I was so angry because we were, by then the jazz had a groundbreaking ceremony for a an arena that I had planned. I had been the head of the task force to pick out the spot for, and I couldn't even get invited to that. No, no. Yeah. And when Carl Malone and John Stockton's numbers were retired, I wasn't invited, but I went anyway on my own. I bought my own ticket. I uh -huh. went because I had drafted those, those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Even before Larry had become the owner. That was a really hard time for me, really hard time for me. And then I went 
went back to the NBA. Suddenly I, I was with the Knicks. You just have to trust the Lord has yeah. a plan. Yeah. And I, I needed that hard time to prepare myself for what was next. When you're in a hard time like that, Kurt, it's hard, it's hard not to find yourself doubting that, that something's going to change. You know that you're going to find something that that life will move on. It's really hard, but you just you just pray and exercise faith and trust in the Lord that that the lessons that you're learning, even during the most difficult moments of your life, are lessons that you need to learn. And so trust Him, and trust Him that He will He will open the doors. You need, you need him to open. He will prevail in your life, and, and you'll find your way. Well, David, this has been uh, so inspiring and helpful, and I really just appreciate you breaking down these concepts um, and these scriptures, and, uh, and hopefully we can, we can bookmark them and, and return them often as we face different uh, challenges in our professional lives and spiritual lives. So now that you're home from your, your mission, you're a year into this, what's, uh, what's keeping you busy or what's got you excited? I'm very excited. I am writing a book. Uh, I guess everybody writes a book at some point, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be working with uh, some, a team from Harvard Business School about building championship culture. Oh, awesome. how, do you, how do you, not winning culture, that's old school, but how do you build championship culture? And this means that you win consistently. You have an organization that has a commitment to excellence. And most of all, you, you as a leader, you create an organization where people can do their very best work. It, nice. it, it works in such a way that Steph Curry can be Steph Curry, you know, yeah. but so can Draymond Green be Draymond Green. Steve Kerr can be the coach of that team and, and actually coach the team to the worst record in the NBA one year and the next year win the title. Uh, you know, he didn't have all of his players the year that they were bad, but they were doing things that were creating a championship mentality. So when he got his players back, they went back and won it again. And I actually thought this year, the Boston Celtics, I thought that the NBA title was the Boston Celtics versus the Milwaukee Bucks, which unfortunately was in the second round of the playoffs. Hmm. But I said at the time, whoever wins this series will win the NBA title because Milwaukee had won it the year before. Mm -hmm. the Greek freak, you know, yeah. uh, and, and I said, they will win it. The winner of that series will be the NBA champion. Boston won the series and I thought they would beat golden state, but golden state came back and played just one great, great series and, and ended up winning again. And Steve Kerr, I think, did the best job of coaching in an NBA finals that I've seen in many, many yeah. years. He, he took Jason Tatum from Boston right out of the series in the way that he defended him. And he just, he just had a champ championship mentality. It was, it was great, 
great to watch. So, nice. so anyway, I'm doing a, a book on a cool. championship. Well, my, yeah, son, my son has started a company seven years ago called Rhone Apparel, like the River Rhone. It is men's activewear. This is one of the shirts. Oh, cool. Right yeah. Um, and I'm really proud of him for this. And I actually just uh, put a partnership together and and bought control of that company. So it's now a it's now a check his family company. So you're his boss now? Is that what's happening? Well, no. <laughs> no, he's my boss. Oh, okay, all right. Think about it. Because I just I just own a, a big piece of stock and I wanna I wanna help him in every way to make that a company where people do their best work. So. Oh, that's cool. Awesome. Well, we're excited to, uh, to, you know, explore the book once it's out and, uh, any other ventures that you have in the future where you're in inspiration and, uh, and speaking as a Utah, we, we do appreciate the, the piece that you played in that, in starting the jazz and, and helping them, or at least helping them flourish here in Utah. And, uh, I'm sure at some point we'll get that, that championship and, and, and you're, you're invited as a, as a Utah, I'm officially inviting you to that, uh, to that event. Uh, so. I, the only point was it was a bitter, it was a yeah. bitter time. That's all. Yeah, it I was, mean, yep. look, it's, it's just the way things tend to work. Yep. Um, yep. but, but look, they had the same time the jazz were really lucky to have Larry Miller keep them where they were in Utah and now to have Ryan Smith who seems committed to winning and making it a, a great, great franchise. So I think yeah. those are those are wonderful blessings. It doesn't always happen in a smaller market, but yeah. but it certainly happened there. Well, my final question for you, uh, David, is imagine if you're in a room full of uh, MBA students or young professionals who are uh, Latter-day Saints and with, with strong testimonies. What, what final encouragement would you give to that group of people? Well, that is a, that's a, a tough question uh, because there's so many directions that I could go, but there's really only one. And that is after all is said and done, God lives. Jesus is the living Christ. Um, we have a prophet on the earth today. What a blessing it is to be a part of this church, the true and living church of Jesus Christ. And I, I know he lives. I know he loves us. And I, I know that he's aware of us. And I'm so grateful for that blessing. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.